Mark 14, and then spend most of our time this morning in Mark chapter 15, kind of bringing ourselves to the end of a long road in the study of the gospel of Mark. It's had me thinking this week about biographies, about um, how engaging biographies can be as a way of not just insight into a person's life, but into a way of life, into a culture at a particular time and place. Biography has been some of my favorite books to read since I was a kid, and, and uh, chances are I'm in good company here because they're always near the top of the bestseller lists. I mean, I guess one of the best examples of that is the award-winning biography of John Adams that David McCullough wrote a few years back. No relation to me, unfortunately. Uh, he, that's the one that was turned into the HBO miniseries. It's, it's a, a really amazing telling of that particular time. Biographies give us something that other kinds of history books can't. It gives us a really deep development of, of, of a character. It gives us a deep understanding of the way that that character interacts with circumstances as they happen to him, and therefore gives us a window into a way, of, a way of living. But the thing about biographies is that if you like books that have a happy ending, you're not going to get one in a biography. Because unless it's an autobiography or some sort of memoir, they all end the same way. They all end with the death of the character that you come to love. There's something about when you're reading a biography that you begin to think of the person almost as if they're still living. It's almost like you get to know them, that you anticipate the way that they'll react to things. You get inside their head if the, if the author is good at it. It's like you're still alive, and then time and again you have to watch them die. I still remember the first time I ever read a biography as a kid. I remember where I was sitting when I read the death scene of the, of the figure that I was reading about, and I remember almost coming to tears, even as a kid, because I had just attached myself to this character for, the, for however long it took me to read it and, and began to identify with him and to, to even love him and then had to watch him die. I kind of feel that's something what we have, have come to here in Mark. To some extent, we've come to identify with Jesus as a character. We've been walking through this gospel for the last few months at, as a congregation. We've seen Jesus in action. We've seen the compassion that led him to, to heal people who were afflicted by evil spirits or by disease like leprosy. We've, we've seen him heal uh, a woman who couldn't be healed by any human doctors. We've seen him even raise the dead to new life. We've seen Jesus do battle on behalf of those who were oppressed with their oppressors, the religious leaders who were using people for their own gain. We've come to identify with his cause. And now at the end, we come to see Jesus die. But there's a major difference here, I think, between what Mark is doing and what normal biographies do. Mark's always been more targeted than a typical biography. He's always had an axe to grind. He's always had a particular theme that he's building towards. For Mark, the death of Jesus, unlike in a, in a normal biography where, where the death of a person is just sort of unfortunate and inevitable. It just had to happen, but no one is looking for it to happen. It just does. Unlike there... It's like Mark's story has been building towards Jesus' death all along. It's the whole point of the story that he's telling. In other biographies, death is often just a, a result of fairly normal causes. Someone gets sick or they die of old age. It's to be expected. Here, the death that Jesus runs towards through his whole life is actually the most shameful death imaginable. Jesus is killed by crucifixion. Crucifixion cross, nailing somebody to a cross, was, was to the Roman Empire what the guillotine was to the French Revolution or what the gas chambers were to the, to the, the Nazi regime in, in Germany. It was horrifying. It was known throughout the Roman Empire. 
It was always done in public places where people could see it and be afraid and would be inspired to obedience because of what they saw. You're typically executed naked. It would typically take several days for you to die, and you die typically by heart failure or suffocation, not by any kind of blood loss. It was a horrible and shameful way to die. It was so shameful that some of the earliest Christians actually tried to clean it up. Some of the earliest groups that were written, that were sort of pushed out of the church because of of heresy, the things that they were teaching were that Jesus could not have died like this. There's no way that a Savior, that the Messiah, the Son of God himself, could have gone through this kind of shame. They cleaned it up because it was too shameful. And it's not a lot has changed since then. To some extent, it's still shameful today. At least as it's described by most Christians with his death as as some sort of sacrifice to appease divine wrath. It's a concept that seems primitive. It seems too ancient, like we would have grown out of it by now. It seems in the way that someone famously labeled it, like some sort of cosmic child abuse. So Mark's been building to this shameful event all along. And as we look at the shameful event, I think we've got to ask one central question. Why did Jesus have to die? It's been made clear all along that that's the point of the story, that his life was marching inevitably towards that end and very much on purpose. So why? That's the question we're going to put to Mark as we read the story and look at it closely today. I want to start by just reading the whole thing, and then we'll take a step back and try to pull some of the details out to answer that central question. Would you stand with me if you found that in Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53? This is the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him. Their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. And now chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? 
But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release one, for them one prisoner whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is God's word. You may be seated. One of the things we've seen Mark about Mark, one of his characteristic storytelling methods, is that he doesn't often elaborate much on what's going on. He tells the story, 
He gives you the details about what happened, but that's pretty much it. He leaves you to interpret what the story means based on the details he's used to tell it. In this case, we're asking of him, why? Why did Jesus have to die? And to get our answer, we've got to analyze the details in this story. I think he gets us there. He gets us to the answer to this question, both negatively and positively. He gets us to why Jesus has to die by eliminating certain explanations that we might throw out there. He explains to us that Jesus did not die because he deserved to die. He didn't die because he was guilty. He also didn't die because he was powerless. He set us up through the way that he's described Jesus to this point to know that Jesus could have saved himself if he had wanted to. So eliminating those obvious explanations, he helps us to see more clearly the reason Jesus did die. He died to establish a kingdom that he could invite us into. That's where we're headed this morning. Let's start with these details that Mark very carefully places in the story to show us why Jesus did not die. First, he he makes it clear that Jesus didn't die because he was guilty. The first phase of Jesus' trial begins immediately where we left off last week with Jesus' betrayal in the garden, where where they come at him with the priests leading the way, but with an army of clubs and weapons. They grab Jesus, they whisk him away to the home of the high priest to be interrogated by a group called the Sanhedrin. It was a group that that was made up of some of the leaders in that society, priests and elders and scribes, who had been given some authority by the Roman government to handle certain basic local issues that the Roman government didn't want to get its hands dirty with. So they they had some authority, and they begin to use it against Jesus. They come in looking for a reason to kill him. Mark has given us hints that that's where they're headed all through the story. Where, he, where Jesus has done battle with them, especially in the temple, we've seen them say they're conspiring together, looking for the right opportunity to, to take Jesus' life. Now they think they've got it. So the trial that they give Jesus is only that in name. It is a farce. Verse 55 says what we've known all along. They were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But what's just as clear in the way that Mark sets up this trial and the trial before Pilate is that they couldn't find any good reason to put him to death. The scene that he described is one of chaos. It's one of of all these figures hating Jesus, throwing everything but the kitchen sink at him, looking for some kind of charge that's going to stick, something that's worthy of of killing him, that they can spin for Pilate in order to get, get their goals accomplished. But Mark says over and over again they didn't find anything, and their testimony didn't even agree. They were contradicting themselves, stumbling over each other, trying to find some reason to put Jesus to death. Finally, all they can settle on is blasphemy because they get Jesus to admit that he's the Christ and they think that that's what they're going to go on. That settles it as far as they're concerned. The problem is that they don't have the right to crucify anybody. Their little local authority, the sort of bone that they had been thrown by the Roman government, didn't extend to the right to take someone's life. So they've got this charge of blasphemy that's enough for them to see, but they've got to find a way to spin it for Pilate. Mark doesn't tell us what their charge was exactly, But they wait to the next morning, they take Jesus with them to Pilate, and they give him over, calling for him to be killed. Apparently, because of the way that Pilate responds, because Pilate immediately begins using the language of the king of the Jews, apparently what they'd done is they tried to twist the blasphemy claim, the claim that Jesus was son of God, into some sort of political uh, threat to the empire, as if he was claiming to represent some alternate kingdom. 
as if he was some Spartacus kind of figure who was going to overthrow the empire so that he could set up his own kingdom in Israel. That's apparently how they spun it to Pilate. But even here, Mark makes it clear to us that Pilate's not buying it. Even Pilate doesn't believe there's anything, that Jesus has done anything worthy of death. Again and again, he tries to tease out of Jesus some sort of defense so that he can set this thing aside. He's not buying it. Pilate wants to release him. He even tries to concoct this scheme, assuming that, that really the ones behind this challenge to Jesus are these chief priests, the leaders who are envious of Jesus' popularity, assuming that the crowd won't, doesn't want Jesus to die. He tries to concoct this scheme where he gives them a choice between this hardened, dangerous criminal and Jesus. He's trying to fix the, the choice. But the chief priests get there first. They stir up the crowd. And by this time, the crowd owns the same hatred towards Jesus that the chief priests have had for so long. They call for Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate, admitting even at the end that he's found no guilt in him, wanting to satisfy the crowd, turns him over to be crucified. Now here's the point. The point in all of these details, in this, this strand that runs through the, the trial stories, is that Jesus is going to be executed along with common criminals, along with murderers and thieves and political dissenters. But he has done none of those things. He's done nothing wrong. So Jesus' death isn't and cannot be about justice. Jesus' death is not something he deserves. Mark wants us to, to see that clearly because he's building to something. He's building towards a death that Jesus offers on behalf of others. And if Jesus had to die because of something he had done, he wouldn't be able to offer that for us. That's where Mark is headed. Note now only the clear, clear thing that Jesus doesn't die for because he was guilty. So, along with his innocence, Mark's account is laced through with another thing. Jesus didn't die because he deserved it. He didn't die because he was guilty. But he also didn't die because he was powerless. He chose to die. We know this coming in because he's been predicting it all through Mark. It seems like over and over again, especially since around chapter 8. Jesus has been telling his disciples that he was going to die. He's predicted everything that's happened to him at this point. He's choosing to die. But the fact that he's not killed because he's powerless to resist comes through even more clearly in the details that Mark uses to tell the story. So when he's accused both by the Sanhedrin and before Pilate. He doesn't say a word to defend himself. The high priest and Pilate are both blown away by this. They're both amazed, Mark tells us, and they both ask the exact same question. Have you no answer to make? You don't have a word to say to try to stop what's about to happen to you? It reads almost like a direct quote out of Isaiah 53, an ancient prophecy given hundreds of years before this that promised a servant who was coming, who would suffer for the sins of Israel, and who would go to the slaughter like a sheep who's silent. Then, after he's been hung on the cross, bystanders begin to taunt him. Taunt him. We've seen that he's, he's going to the cross without trying to defend himself legally. He doesn't try to dispute charges against him. But he also doesn't try to defend himself by using the power we know as readers of Mark all the way through that, that he has, that he could have used to resist the things that happened to him. So the bystanders begin to taunt him as he's hanging on the cross. They think 
that in, in the fact that he's crucified, they see all the proof they need that he was a fraud, that God was punishing him for some sort of unrighteousness, that, that he was no more than a pretender to the throne. That's what they see in the fact that he's dying. They tell him to save himself, to come down from the cross. But here's the thing. We know, as readers of Mark, Mark knows that Jesus could have done just that if he'd wanted to. We know, as readers of Mark's entire story, that saving himself was always a live option for the one who healed lepers and gave life to the dead with a touch, for the one who fed 5,000 people out of somebody's lunchbox, for the one who calmed storms just by speaking a word. For that guy, coming down from the cross was always a live option, and he does nothing to stop it. What Mark has done in the details he's used to tell a story is to remove a couple of major possible options for why Jesus had to die. It wasn't because he deserved it, like those who were crucified on his right and his left. They got what they deserved. Jesus didn't. And it wasn't because he couldn't stop them, as if he was just some pawn in the hands of his accusers who they got to do what they wanted to with, as, as if he was passive and receiving death rather than active and going to it and embracing it. I think the best contrast, this comes through clearly, most clearly by, by comparing it to another famous crucifixion that happened just about 100 years before Jesus was here. You guys seen the movie Spartacus? It tells the story of a Roman slave who led a revolt against the Roman Empire. It's a great Kirk Douglas movie. It'll take you like two days to watch it because it's really long, but it's really good. It's worth, your, it's worth your time. It tells this amazing story about this slave who somehow revolts against Rome and leads an army of slaves and almost almost as successful in toppling that portion of the empire, but he wasn't. Ultimately, his power ran out. He was captured, and he was crucified. And he was crucified because he couldn't do anything about it. His power met its end. With Jesus, it's not that way. That's what the onlookers think has happened to Jesus here. But Mark's readers know better both because of what they've seen Jesus do before and because of how he handles himself here. He clearly wants to die. So why? Why did Jesus have to die? That's the lingering question that hangs over this account. I believe if we read the death of Jesus in Mark chapter 15, in light of everything that Mark has already told us from chapters 1 through 14, what we see is that Jesus had to die to establish a kingdom that you could live in. Jesus had to die to establish a kingdom that you could live in. So from the very first words of Jesus in chapter 1, right at the beginning of his ministry, he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. The implication is that he is the one who's going to bring it in. It's been expected for thousands of years by the people of Israel who have waited for God to fulfill his promises, and Jesus shows up on the scene saying, now is the time, and it's in me. But the rest of the story begins to, to build a picture of a kingdom that's entirely unexpected. Jesus is not establishing his kingdom in the way that anyone thought he would. He doesn't come with power. He doesn't come with, with, with some sort of military might. He doesn't ride at the head of an army that Rome can't resist. In fact, he, he keeps his identity under wraps and tells people not to announce who he is. Anytime he's doing a miracle, he, he seems to dislike the fame that comes from it. Jesus is not up to building a kingdom in the way that anyone thought he would. Now we see clearly why he spent so much time deflecting praise 
he knew that no one could really understand what his kingdom was like until they saw how it was that he'd become king. They knew, he knew that no one could understand what his kingdom was going to be like until they saw how it was that he was going to become king. I think in chapter 15, we come to the chief irony in Mark. We've noted before that Mark loves to use ironies. An irony is simply something that doesn't square up between the actual result of events and what you'd expect to happen from those events. An ironic turn in a story is when you you see something happen, you expect one thing to happen, but, but those events actually make the opposite thing happen. We've seen it in in Mark already, for instance, in the fact that it's children and demons and Gentiles who understand who Jesus is, where it's the religious leaders, the ones you'd most expect to know who he is, who hate him and want to seek his death. That's an irony that runs all through the story. But this irony in chapter 15 trumps them all. The way that Mark sets things up, Jesus' death reads like a coronation ceremony. I don't know if you've ever noticed just how consistent the theme of kingship is in the way that Jesus dies. Lindsay and I saw the king's speech last weekend. Amazing movie. At the center of it is is an account of a coronation of this king. And it's got all the bells and whistles that you'd expect, right? You've got this packed out ancient cathedral. It's adorned uh, with with all of the all of the things that you'd expect it to be adorned with, and you got people dressed up in all this elaborate and over the top clothing. You've got these fancy crowns. You've got the singing of Handel's coronation chorus. You've got the whole nation watching in pride and awe. That's what a coronation looks like. That's what we expect for for it to look like for a king to become king. Jesus' coronation as king looked nothing like that. When his enemies think they're taunting him with titles and crowns and robes, the irony is they actually speak the truth. When they think they've defeated him because he's dying, the irony is they're actually setting him on the throne. This is a a theme I want you to, to follow with me through the story. It begins back at the trial scene, middle of the night. Before the Sanhedrin and the high priest, Jesus is there and he's just standing there completely silent while there's this chaos around him and charges flying all around people trying to make anything stick jesus just stands there taking it then it comes the central question that all of mark's narrative has been designed to answer that everything has built towards the high priest steps up in the middle of the chaos and asks are you the christ are you the son of the blessed shorthand for are you the son of god Before now, Jesus has only kept silent. Anybody who has tried to label him in that way, he's tried to shut them down. He said, don't say it. There's this secrecy that's been running throughout the whole story. Now, for the first time, facing a death that he has known is coming, he pulls back the veil. In answer to the high priest's question, he says simply, I am. I am. And you're going to see the Son of Man coming in power. Jesus' answer is simple, it's direct, it's confident, and it's totally tied in with what is happening to him at that moment. He is now showing for the world that he is the Christ through the fact that he dies. What it looks like for the Son of Man to be seated at the right hand of power is the death that's coming down the pike straight at him. 
theme continues before Pilate. Pilate repeatedly refers to him as the king of the Jews. Who knows, maybe he's doing it just to get under the skin of those who think he's a fraud, the religious leaders. That may be why he's using the title, but the fact is Mark repeats it over and over. He wants it in front of you, in front of your eyes. This is the king of the Jews. They say it to mock him, but it's for real. Then probably the best example of this whole story as a coronation of Jesus as king is what the soldiers do to him. Uh, They think they're mocking him. Again, that's what they think. They taunt him with titles. They put the robe of royalty on him, a purple robe, wrap it around him. They create a crown for him and actually crown him, just like we saw in the movie The King's Speech, happening to that that king in front of all these onlookers and all this pomp and circumstance. They actually crown Jesus, and they think they're mocking him, but they're really actually crowning him. He becomes king in this greatest moment of shame. Then in the providence of God, the list of charges that's hung over his head on the cross, which is typical, you put why the person was being killed, it just reads simply, the king of the Jews. Here he is. Mark wants you to see him. This is what it looks like for him to be king. The high priest would have wanted it to say he claimed to be king of the Jews, and that's why he got killed. What it says is, here he is. This is the king of the Jews. And then in the mouth of perhaps the least likely person to recognize him for who he is, The centurion who is responsible for killing Jesus, for overseeing the act of Jesus' death, when he sees the way that Jesus dies, specifically sees Jesus' death, he knows it. He gets it. This guy's the Son of God. You see how this works? All through the story, this kingship thing runs like a thread. Half the time, it's taunting. It's deeply ironic, but it's there because Mark wants to point us to the fact that Jesus said at the, original, at the, at the very beginning that he was going to establish a kingdom, and here he is. Finally, this is what it looks like for him to be king. As throughout Scripture, God's ways aren't ours. He confounds the wise and the powerful for his own purposes. It resonates with Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul's talking against those who are trying to make Christianity seem intelligent. They're trying to make it seem as if it's obvious, as if any logical mind would have to embrace it. They want to use it as a badge of honor for them and their intelligence. They want to show themselves to be enlightened because they understand Christianity. And Paul reminds them it's foolishness. It always has been and it always will be. And it's foolishness because God designed it that way. And God designed it that way so that none of us could boast in the fact that we received Jesus. It's not evidence of our intelligence. It's evidence of the fact that God has worked in power in us. He designed it that way, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, so that no one can boast before God. The story reminds us that this is, this is the way that Jesus died because this is how he'd become king and establish his kingdom. So why? The big question is, what is the connection between his death and his coronation as king? Why does he have to become king by dying? We've seen that that's exactly what Mark says is happening. What we want to know is, is why was that necessary? This is a huge question. Uh, it's a question that we could, we could spend weeks looking at. It's a question that was answered in more detail, I think, in the sermon from last week. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, if you're interested in knowing some more, I refer you back to that sermon. But for now, what's the connection between Jesus dying and his kingdom? 
I think there are two, two features of the passage, especially near the end, where Jesus speaks and where, the, and where the, the veil gets torn that help us understand why he had to die to establish a kingdom. I think we've got to understand sin as a kind of insurgency. We have to understand the concept of sin within the concept of a kingdom. A kingdom is a realm in which someone has authority over the lives of those who live in that realm. An insurgency is when someone violates that authority or attempts to put themselves in the place of authority. Maybe they don't like the way that authoritative decisions are being made, and so they, they fight to try to establish a new regime. It's, it's a lot very similar to some of the things we see going on in the Middle East right now. That's an insurgency. People who live in a realm who are no longer happy with the way that that realm is being administered, and so they, they revolt. I think we need to understand sin as a kind of insurgency against the authority of God. It's kind of rebellion, a replacement of God's authority with ours. It's a violation of harmony in the kingdom, of peace. And what it does is create a separation between God and us. In the same way that for a kingdom to exist, for it to be established in health and security, the insurgency has to be rooted out. It has to be put out of that kingdom. So, for, in God's kingdom, any competing authority must be put out. Sin our rebellion creates a separation between us and God. This was the theme of last week's sermon. It's something that's seen from the very beginning in Genesis and when Adam and Eve are removed from the garden because of their sin and God puts this, this flaming sword to keep them out. There's now no longer an option for them of walking and talking with God with this direct fellowship with him because they've put their own authority above his and now there's the separation that's created. I think the same kind of separation is, is seen in the temple the temple is about meeting with God, but it's also about, about making sure we understand we can't just go directly to him, right? The Old, Testament, the Old Testament temple is a place of regulations, of barriers, of walls and different courts and, and curtains that separate certain holy places from, from those who are not holy enough to enter. It's a reminder that there's a separation between God and us. What we see in this story particularly in Jesus' cry from the cross, why have you forsaken me, is that Jesus had to die to create a kingdom of loving and willing subjects. That kingdom of loving and willing and obedient subjects wasn't possible unless first the separation that sin deserves is dealt with. Jesus, in other words, had to absorb the separation from God that our sin requires before we could ever hope to live in a kingdom with, with God as our God and we as his people. That had to happen. That's why Jesus cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? He endured in that moment the absence of God that is the just punishment for the sins that we've committed. We deserve to be put out of the kingdom as those who have rebelled against it. And Jesus is himself put out of the kingdom on our behalf on the cross. There was no way around it. He had to die for this kingdom to be possible. Mark tells us that he uttered a loud cry and then died. Verse 37. John tells us that the words were, it is finished. The message is that Jesus, crying out first that he had been forsaken by his father and then that the work was finished, Jesus absorbed the separation that our sin required perfectly. And because he absorbed it perfectly, because he perfectly paid what we owe for our sin, 
He has perfectly laid a foundation for us to live with peace in God, in peace with God in His kingdom. That's why the second feature that matters about this text. That's why when Jesus died, the veil that separated the holiest place in the temple from all those who were too unholy to enter is torn, and it's torn from top to bottom by God Himself. Because looking down upon Jesus, the king over the kingdom that he came to establish, he sees a perfect and absolute sufficient sacrifice that covers the separation that all of his subjects owed for their sin. Now, because of what Jesus did, there is no barrier between God as, as king over the kingdom and us, his people, as, as his willing subjects. Jesus had to die if a kingdom was going to be possible Because otherwise we would be separated from God. We would be on the outside of the veil. We'd have no access to God. Now, because of Jesus' perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice, we can live in peace and harmony in his kingdom. I think that's why he had to die. That's Mark's point. And I also think that this is the way we have to understand everything that we've read so far in Mark. Taking a step back, looking at the whole story from a bird's eye view, we've noted that that Mark has been consistently trying to answer three questions. He's been trying to answer, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come here to do? And what does that require from us? Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come here to do? And what does that require from us? I don't think we can understand the answer to any of those questions unless we understand it from this central event. The death of Jesus... Mark 15 is the key to understanding everything that Jesus has has come here to to do and to reveal. It answers his identity. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God's son. That's who he's named and labeled over and over again through these events leading to his death. He's the promised king who would rule forever on the throne of David in peace and harmony with God. That's his identity. That's who Jesus is. What did he come to do? came to establish that promised kingdom, which shockingly can only happen through the apparent defeat of his kingdom. It only happens when he looks like he's been overthrown. And what does it call for from us? That's the central question that we've got to answer. What what should we do in response to this story that's been told to us? I think that in the faith of the centurion, we see what it calls for from us. The centurion, again perhaps the least likely person to respond well to Jesus. As he is himself overseeing Jesus' death, he bows and he says, truly this man was a son of God. What does it look like for us to respond in the way that the centurion has? I think what we've seen time and again is that it requires a certain kind of submission from us. If Jesus is to be son of God... If he is to be the authority or the sovereign over this king that he's come, the kingdom that he's come to establish, it requires us to set aside any other allegiance that we might have. It requires us, in other words, to do what is the least natural thing for us to do, which is to fight seeing everything as it relates to us. The most natural thing for all of us as humans is to view the whole world through how it, how it relates to us. We're inherently self-centered. We always seek our own interests first. 
we always assume, don't we, that other people see the world in the same way that we do. And so we get, we get upset when they don't see our interests, when they don't seek our interests in the way that we are. We get offended when, when they don't seem to prioritize us in the way that we do. What comes more, most naturally to us is to make decisions, to view the world, to view others, to view our relationships as they, as they have bearing on us and our interests. That's what comes natural. Living in a kingdom, though, where Jesus is the sovereign requires us to, to reverse that natural pattern. What it looks like is for us to submit everything. It calls for us to submit our minds to him, to hear from him, to hear the things that he's taught and submit to them as true. It calls for us to stop putting Jesus to the test, by, to stop demanding things of him intellectually and to receive with humility the things that he tells us are true. That's a step that's hard to get to. It's not the first step. Some of the first steps can be engaging difficult questions about Christianity, but ultimately what it will look like for you to submit to Jesus is to let him tell you the way things are rather than, than you imposing standards on him that he's got to meet. It looks like submission of the mind. It looks like submission of your choices to him. It means making decisions about life, about jobs, about family, about church, in light of how they relate to his kingdom and its priorities rather than in light of how they'll add to what you have going on in your life. It means starting there. It means submitting your marriage to him. In spite of the fact that we come so naturally for those of us who are married to, to seek our own interests in that relationship, it means seeing the marriage both as a tool to be used for the good of his kingdom, but also to allow what he tells us marriage should be like to define how we approach it. It means submitting everything to him. But the beauty of this story, the beauty of what we've seen all throughout Mark, is that the call to submit to him in this way is not the call to submit to some sort of authoritarian leader, some sort of Hitler who, who is going to use us and abuse us for his own gain. In the cross of Jesus, we see more clearly than we've seen anywhere else in this story that Jesus has... Uh, is, is willing to give up even his own life to secure our good. So we can trust him when he calls us to submission because we know we have a pledge that's unshakable in what he's done for us on the cross that promises when we submit to him, it will lead to a good end because Jesus wouldn't even stop at death to secure what's best for us. It calls for confidence to submit to him freely with the promise that he's given us that Whoever lays down their life is going to find it. You give your life away, you get your life. You try to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. The kind of submission that's called for here is not, it's not some sort of authoritarian regime. It's a call to rest. It's a call to stop worrying about self, about building your own kingdom, because you've got a kingdom that's so secure that provides a foundation for who you are and why you matter that is so much more solid than anything you could build on your own, that it calls for you to submit fully to him and rest in the fact that he is everything you need. And when you rest in him, it allows you to submit to the call to self-denial that Jesus gives to us. Discipleship, following a Jesus, following a Christ who, who dies looks like taking up your cross and putting your interests aside for the sake of others. When you're secure enough in the rest that Jesus provides you in his kingdom, you are, you are able to stop trying to build your own kingdom and to turn to the needs of other people. 
It's a trickle-down effect. It begins with recognizing his kingdom is all-sufficient, that it offers everything that we need and calls us to submit everything to him. And when that happens, what we find in it is rest and a motive and a freedom to live for others and not for ourselves. In that sense, this, this story, the death of Jesus, is the culmination of everything we've read in Mark, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Will you pray with me?